Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Yangel's career has focused on improving the quality of urban life by focusing first on the pedestrian and the cyclist. In his words, first life, then spaces, then buildings. The other way around never works. This Danish architect and urbanist's methods of observation and study of urban space, which evaluates the quality of a city by counting the active use of its outdoor spaces, are now used all over the world. Gail recently gave a lecture at the Rocca London Gallery as part of the recent exhibition, The Data and Life of Great Future Cities. What follows is a recording of his lecture. For many, many years, been to many architectural research conferences where we've just discussed architectural research. And my major point here has been that we are not a profession. We don't have research. We have a puny little something of research. We hardly know what we are doing. What we do is we rush out and take some photos and put them in the magazines and rush on to the next building without knowing whether the previous ones worked well. <clears throat> there was this point in this conference in Edinburgh. <clears throat> Ken Warpole took up a bottle or something and said, I'm sorry for you architects, because <clears throat> your major mean of communication is a still photo and the two-dimensional drawing. And by because of this, you focus all your energy on the form. You think the form is everything. But this is not architecture. This is sculpture. Architecture is the interplay between form and life. And while this is very easy to communicate and to study and to, uh, to talk about, life is so much more complicated to study, and especially the interplay between form and life. But only if the interplay between form and life is successful is this great architecture. I feel sorry for you architects. And I always felt sorry for them and was down on my knee trying to find out about this, which was very complicated. I'll tell you that story. But that is the reason why we can have cartoons like this. I was going recently to an architecture research conference and I found this t-shirt in the Danish Architectural Center. And I always thought it was quite funny. But then I came to think about that architecture can change the world, but we have to be much more careful with the data and the feedback than just taking some photographs of it. What we have to do is to change the mindset and then the mindset can change the world. And to change the mindset, you have to do proper research. So I thought I'll make as a theme of this conference that actually this can come through, but you have to work harder than with a, with a camera. What this whole exhibition is about and what we also are about to talk about today is that there is this saying that what you count, you care for. And that is absolutely true that if you have no knowledge about an area, you don't spend much thinking about it. So this will be 
more or less the subjects of today, especially what if architecture can change the world, rather than try to give a complete picture and discuss all the modern ways of data collection, I decided to tell about the story of my own life, which has been very much about data and changing mindsets. To understand this story, I go back to the middle part of the previous century and to two old planning paradigms. Of course, there was the modernists, and you know all about them. They started in the 20s. They talked a lot about the 30s. There was the Athens Charter in 33, and it didn't really unfold until 1960 when the city started to expand all over the world. And at that time also we had the technology to build mechanized and modernism was ideally suited for this rapid growth of cities and this mechanization. And Corbusier said all the time, don't make cities make freestanding buildings. And also what they did was they defined that the, we now had a completely new species. The well-known old species, Homo sapiens, was redundant, could not be used for nothing. Now we had the new man, the modern man, completely different from everything else. He was running full speed from his bed to his work to his bed. No nonsense. I was in Lübeck early this year, and then they saw this speaker and said, hey, why do you show Mr. Josef Goebbels here? I didn't know. It is from a Swedish book from 1932. How did they get Goebbels up there at that time? I don't know. But modern man and everything old, where we what we built, all the old cities were hurt, were to be thrown out. That was for another species. This modernism, which I have circled around all my time, the essence of this was that until this pound, point, we built all the cities around spaces, and in the spaces, everything took place. We walked there, we communicated, we talked, we traded. We did everything in the spaces of the city. The city was made of spaces. And if you think of any old city, you think of a lot of spaces and a lot of a lot of buildings. It's only later we started to see only the buildings and not the spaces. There were no spaces. So, all the old cities were built around spaces, and we thrived in spaces because the spaces were made to human scale and to human needs. With modernism came a completely new concept. Now the focus was on the objects. What was not built upon was not a space, but a leftover space. And that's completely another story than a space. The leftover space was later proved on to be very, very smart for the automobile invasion because the automobiles could take all the leftover space. This is, of course, Corbusier's vision for a new Paris, take down the old rubbish and build 25 high-rise where the Parisians can overview the whole scene and see what a beautiful city Paris can be. All this moving from the spaces to the objects had led to this forest of funny perfume bottles, which you can find <laughs> all over the world. And have led to the whole architecture profession running around making perfume bottles here and there. And none of them are able to make spaces no more, which is more interesting even. What happened with the modernists was that it all became very big and um, modernism lent itself very good to planning from a great height. 
And then the architects, planners, they went up in these aeroplanes, 5,000 meters, and then they started to organize the objects of the city from a good height. Bingo. And the site planners, they went slightly more down and finally adjusted it. But this was the way everything was done from far away and from far up, and he was focused on the objects. I call it the, the Brasilia syndrome because that was how Brasilia really was made. But down at the people scale, where the people were to move around, nobody were able to see anything of that from that height. And there was nobody asked to look after this, not the architects, not the planners, not the landscape architects. They were too busy with their plants, and nobody looked after the people. They, don't, they didn't count, and they didn't care. My take on the modernism was that that was the end of the concern for people in construction. The other big paradigm, of course, was the car invasion, started 1905 in the Wild West, but in 1960, <coughs> it really started to hit all our communities, and soon it became, uh, it became a very dominating factor. It started out very nicely with Copenhagen, seen here, 205, one car, no problem. Then there were more cars, some problems, and people started to run as fast as they could to get to save themselves. And then their third stage, the Moscow uh, pedestrian crossing, uh, cross between a car parking and a slalom training course and a pedestrian crossing. That is, the car is the king, and that has happened in many, many cities in a, in a rather salami-type uh, situation. What happens with the car was very interesting because in all the cities, when they had this new problem, they set up a band of traffic engineers who are very good. They are very, very, they're very, very accomplished, and they have perfect statistics of everything that has to do with traffic and cars. They counted all the cars in the morning and in the evening, and all the year they have models, they have projections, they can do everything. They have, I really admire the traffic engineers. They had all the data and could tell the mayor what to do here, here, here. Not a single city had a department for pedestrians and for people and public life. And not a single city for 40, 50 years had any knowledge about the people who used the city, while the bloody guys had all the facts about <coughs> the cars said, no wonder that the cars were cared for and the people were not cared for. Then we can go back to the year uh, 1960, and that is also the year where I said that these things really rolled out. What did we know about people and, and the interface between the rela relation between form and life at that time? We knew practically nothing because all what we knew has been thrown out by the modernists and was told to be redundant. We, you, now we have another situation. You have to start right from square one. Henrique Benyalosa from Bogota, he had this observation. It's a paradox that man will, mankind will know so much about 
good habitat for Siberian tigers and mountain gorillas, gorillas, gorillas. And so little knowledge about good urban habitat for Homo sapiens. And for, certainly he was right and he is still right. We know not too much. But the first voice we heard on this was the voice of Jane Jacobs. <coughs> and that was exactly the same year, 1961. Actually, during 1960, when all this was rolled out and the cars was rolling in, she was in a heavy infight with Robert Moses about these areas in New York, which he wanted to take away. They were redundant. Greenwich, Greenwich Village was the worst of them. And there, Jane Jacobs lived, which was very fortunate for Greenwich Village and unfortunate for Robert Moses because she had this great fight and she won. And the, the cross Manhattan freeway was taking off and all the high rise which should have been where Greenwich Village was, was taking off the board. <coughs> she wrote down this in her book, a famous book, which is so famous that it is the background of this exhibition. And uh, basically she say, if the modernists and the motorists are going to shape the future cities, they'll be dead cities and not great cities. And she also said something else. Look, you planners and architects, don't sit in your studios and speculate about what people ought to do, but look out of the window and get some knowledge about what people are doing that could give you a good starting point. Look out of the windows. She's now almost a saint. I saw these uh, posters last year in, in Toronto. Um, she can hardly get anywhere higher. And Jesus is looking after the previous times and Jane Jacobs looking after the future. How can you get higher? My own story follows that of Jane Jacobs and my work follows in the past of her and inspired by her. I was trained as an architect in the 50s and were we good at this exercise? We spent all day sitting in the studio, moving the objects around until it was perfect. And um, the other half of the day, we bent towards Basilia. <laughs> and we wished we had money to go on a pilgrimage to see Basilia, which would be so fantastic. This was a guy called Lindström, and he, he, his, his house was called Lindströmers, and he was the one saying that if a housing area looks fantastic from the freeway, it's a fantastic housing area. And this, is a, this must be very fantastic. It's one of the most troublesome areas in Sweden by now. I rushed out of School of Architecture having learned all these fantastic things, and uh, then uh, was got just about to apply them when, when I married a psychologist. And then that was sort of <coughs> a big crossing point in my life because suddenly we young architects with all these fantastic ideas which we learned from our professors, we made these social scientists say, you don't know a shit about what you're doing. Why, don't, why are you architects not interested in people? Why don't they teach you anything about people in School of Architecture? And why do you think your professors take the photos five o'clock in the morning to be sure 
there's no people on the pictures to distract the students in the lectures. That was not so good. So I had to go back to school of architecture for 40 more years <laughs> to learn what they didn't tell me in the first five years. I only went there to find out that they didn't know at all anything. So we had to find out from square one about people. In my case, I sat on my behind in 40 years watching people. I always used the, the data collecting system Mark I eyeball. <laughs> that means that there are no technical means, there are no counters and cables and everything, films. You just watch. And uh, I'll to come back to this, but we sat there watching for 40 years. And just to show you some of the very little things we, we, we looked at, say, what is this? School of Architecture Copenhagen had moved to a new location in the, in the Navy barracks, called in the landscape architect, say, lake some landscaping. He made beautiful lawns with edges of steel as you should do them these days. And what is this? This is a corner. And what is this? This is where you get the coffee. And when the students come around the corner and see where they can get the coffee, and they also see the famous landscape architect has laid out these fine things. And the landscape architect, of course, image that you will walk <laughs> until you had your coffee. But that's, we all know that's not students, actually. That's no one. So the students, they headed for the coffee, and soon this looked like that. And two weeks later, the landscape architect had to come out with some solutions for this problem, which he could easily have foreseen all the time, because man is very, very careful with his energy, his own energy. So that's just a little observation. Another little observation, we have something called the edge effect. And these are just some of the things which we, over all these years, picked up. The edge effect, if you are to wait for, for a period at a time, you, um, you don't go out in the middle of everywhere and stand there. And, uh, because you cannot stand there for 10, 15, 20 minutes. 20 minutes, and they start, and what's he doing out there? <laughs> we, we better call the police or something. <laughs> no, you, if you are to wait, you drift elegantly over by the side where you are not in the way of nobody. And you can see the whole scenery. And you are more discreet over here. Here you can wait for an hour and you can watch whatever is going on. It's very comfortable. All your senses are out here. You can see everything. You can control everything. Nothing. You don't miss nothing. And nobody comes up from behind and says, hey. And and you get very worried. So over by the edge is a very wonderful place for Homo sapiens because of the senses and our history. Actually, the edge here is the, is the bottom of the, of the caveman's cave. He was sitting in the bottom of his cave with a little fire in front of him and the opening beyond there and the saber-toothed tooth tiger beyond the opening so he could control the world from here. It's that old. Here we are, its effect in Saint, near the God and Pape and in Barcelona. And then we started, we saw it was a very strong pattern around the world, its effect. Then we started to think, maybe it's different 
with architects. Maybe they have, they, they do things. Do they like to be at the edge? And we did, of course, very careful studies with architecture students in Sweden, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, and Denmark. And we came up with a, with a very firm conclusion that architects are just about like anybody else. They are also homo sapiens. <laughs> then who will place these benches? <laughs> and if I give you an advice, if you place benches like this, bring some bronze people and put them there. <laughs> <coughs> so you're sure they're used, because ordinary homo sapiens will not. But if you had placed the bronze people, you can see maybe a couple sitting next to it, because then they are in company. That's another story. But all these things we started to accumulate, and we used the Mark I eyeball. This is a study we did in Melbourne about how front yards were used. By We studied residential streets. We sat there from 5 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the night <coughs> and did the best study method I ever encountered. That was taking a note of everything happening in the street. And you can see 100 meters. So we do sides of 100 meters. And, of course, we dressed up in a camouflage with the with asphalt. <coughs> But then we had a cover story that was that we were out from School of Architecture to study the conflict between playing children and traffic and the inhabitants. They were so pleased, finally, architects to come around to study something worthwhile. And they came out with tea and everything. But after a while, they forgot we were there and we just sat there. And in the end, we came up with a fantastic picture of what happened really in a day-to-day a setting of an ordinary Australian housing area in the inner cities, in the suburbs, whatever. That's just to show that we studied all these things in all these continents. And the more I studied, the more I realized that it's the same Homo sapiens all over the world. We have the same biological history. We have the same genes. And we behave very much the same way, whether we are Arabs or from Tokyo, or from Montreal, we, we, we're not touching animals. We don't, we never touch nobody unless we invite it. I can see nobody touching nobody here unless they're invited, <laughs> or unless it's very crowded. But this is the behavior, and if you think they are different in Washington and in, 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 in Moscow, then I can tell you they are not. They are homo sapiens, and we know what to do over the years, and all the time, I used Mark One eyeball. I used observation, systematic observation, and putting down the data uh, in, in an organized way so you can see the patterns. We had many ways of finding the patterns from our observations. Why observations? Because it was very much research. We didn't know anything. And by going out and, and getting the information personally, you could see the patterns in more detail. You can see, actually, that was the same lady who just did this and whatever. You could see lots of very funny um, items which, you know, you will never have seen in, if it was too automatic. Say, in Australia, when we studied the front yards, we saw people go and check the postcard six, uh, postbox six times on a Sunday. 
Why on a Sunday? There were no postmen. No, but going out to the post box was the legitimate activity. And being it Sunday or not Sunday, you can always go and check the post box. And also we saw people with a little garden mowing it sort of five times because they were out in the sun and the neighbors were coming by and they were doing something very good for the neighborhood, making sure that their front yard was in good order. And you can do that five times, that's five times better. All these things, <laughs> tiny little things, we saw ourselves. I remember one of my students said, Jan, when we get all this together, we may not be able to prove it, but we bloody well saw it, didn't we? We saw it. We learned from it. And that's a very important benefit of using Mark 1. That is that you saw it, you can learn from it. And all the time, something which we didn't expect happened. Then we started to put it down in, I started to put it down in, in books. My little book here, uh, Life Between Buildings, was my thesis, 1971, 10 years after Dan Jacobs. And then it started to be distributed, and I was very surprised because I thought it was just so banal. It is very banal. It was just published in Iceland two weeks ago, only 47 years after the first, but <laughs> they're far out in the Atlantic. <laughs> then, of course, came this one, Cities for People. It's published in all languages except... Swedish. I, I used this picture in Sweden just before Christmas, and not one but two publishers came rushing up and said, we'll do something about this. <laughs> anyway, um, it is, it is, I'm so, I'm so proud and humbled to see that these, these books are out all over. And it is not because it's a fantastic book necessarily but it is because there is so little written about this and there is so great hunger around the world for information about how to make better city for people. People have been treated so badly for so many years. <clears throat> it's even out in, in Greek, which I'm very proud of. Of course, Arabic and, and Thai and, and Iran, that's simple. Um, Greek, I said... When they phone from Greek, no, no, not in Greece. No, 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 don't use your money in Greece for that little book. You have other things to use your money for. And then they say, don't worry, it's the Danish embassy who looks after the economy. They got the book. And they, <laughs> they, need, it, they need it very much. Now they have to go on bicycle a lot. Uh, even in French, it's come out. It took 40 years to have the first one out in French. And it is not out in Paris, of course. It's out in Montreal. But they, they export it to France. And it's now come out in 38, 9, and it's getting 40 before the year's over. The next one, which is more relevant to this subject, is after we did this one, where the foundation who have been so graceful to pay a lot to my, my they came and said, what you are doing here in university, that's very valuable. Do you have enough money? They should never say that to any person in a university. So I said, money? No, not quite enough. And then they gave us a substantial sum. And then I, I got out of university, and then they came down to our office 
a few years later and say, Jan, we would like you to sit down and write everything you know while you can still remember it. <laughs> and, uh, and then they said, we know you have no time, but how many assistants do you need? Then we got it written. But then two years later, they said, now you put down everything you know, or everything you found out is here in this book. Couldn't you make another book telling how you developed the methods where you found out these findings? And then we did How to Study Public Life, which is now out in, I think, 14 languages. Just came out in Portugal and Thai, of course. So it's been a fantastic travel for me to see my, my, my work which is basically to study people properly and to find out how they relate with architecture so that we know what we are doing and are not manipulating in blind. And to see these books being spread over, all over the world has been a fantastic privilege for me. It's a privilege to be so bloody old as I am that you can see your thoughts being distributed and used in real life. All my books are out in Chinese. They've been out there for 25 years, some of them. And I know they're widely distributed because I signed them all. <laughs> <laughs> what, what makes me a little bit sad in my older days is that they never had time to read them over there. <laughs> but um, maybe as time go by. Anyway, end of this with the research. And now it's 50 years later, after we didn't know nothing in 1960. And now I would say we quite knew quite a bit now. We know how to clean up existing city after the automobile. And we also know how to make great new towns and great housing areas for the 21st century. That last part we don't need, we don't use so much. Um, but certainly we can see in all the cities how it is used widely. While all this research has been going on, of course, society has changed also. And maybe we can say that every mayor I can meet today, if we show this, would you like a, li a livable, sustainable, and healthy city? He would say, this is my program. How could you know? This is what I do. Um, they all are after this. And that is not about motorism and, and, and modernism. It's changed. Actually, since 2000, the wind has changed. The wind on the bicycle lane is now tailwind. All this about good spaces for people where people can meet is, is elementary now. We all realize that we cannot live without. And when we made good public spaces where people can meet and the meeting of citizens can take place, they are successful if we make them of good quality. We also have to do something with the climate. And we know that the more they bike and they walk, the better. And we know that we should do much more about public transportation and train driving. And in this way, the quality of the public realm is very important to make this successful. Many, many cities have strategies along that. We have. We can see the end of the automobile era. 
And the automobile traffic has already topped in America and Canada and, and Australia in 2009. And, uh, but still, over there, especially, we have this new problem, the sitting syndrome, that people die because they've been sitting too much. We know that in suburbs, they die earlier than in cities, because why is that? In cities, we walk more and there are more stairs. In the suburbs, we've got used to sit more and there are more car driving. And um, we know that just one hour of moderate exercise a day will be very important for us and we give us many more years of good quality and make a much cheaper health system. All this we know. And that's why the World Health Organization say that they will induce the cities to make people naturally walk and bike as much as possible instead of sitting in cars all the time. So we are driving towards a situation where we have to be much more active in our cities. And if we look at these, at, at these things and look at walking and bicycling, we can find they address livability, sustainability and health very, very nicely. Now we can ask, are there cities who have such policies? And here we will invite people to walk and bike as much as possible in the course of their daily day doings. It's not about what they do on Sundays. It's what they do the rest of the week, which is really uh, crucial here. And cities all over the world is actually doing this now. One of the first pioneers were Melbourne in, um, in Australia. It was just an awful colonial city with offices and no activity in the city at night and during the, the weekend. They decided to change it and they have completely changed it in a fantastic turnaround. Melbourne is now one of the best cities in, in the world. It's by far the best city in Southern Hemisphere. The atmosphere on the streets are like Paris, but the climate is better. <laughs> and. Uh, for every year, they have more and more people walking in the city. They have the policy in this city of streets we walk. They widen all the sidewalks. They put granite on all the sidewalks. They put trees on all the sidewalks. They have a very firm policy that no shop shall be allowed to close their window to the street. Don't close your window to my sidewalk, say the city architect, who is Rob Adams, a very strong character. And he will say, I have had 16 mayors. I'll run them all. Very strong character, Rob Adams. And I was in Melbourne in, in, in December, and you could hardly get through this, the crowds. There were so many people. And now they had discussions about how to relieve the pressure of all the people who wanted to walk in Melbourne. They also have free public transportation, by the way. So. If I should give you just a little advice, move to Melbourne. <laughs> the climate is even better. And they have trams. <clears throat> Sydney. We worked in Sydney since 2006. It's been very hard work. Main Street was hill on earth, but it's not no more. It was difficult to get the buses out, but I succeeded. I haven't managed that up in, in um, Oxford Street yet, but we're working on it. And I, I, I look forward to the day when we can do the same. And in, in Swanson Street now, they have granite from wall to wall. 
the tracks for the light rail has been put down, it's pedestrians and light rail, as it should be in Oxford Street also. New York, Mayor Bloomberg 207, I will make New York the most sustainable metropole in the world. He said, I have a flat city, I have a compact city, I have wide streets, it's ideal for bicycling, I have a very good subway system, and I have wide sidewalks, or I can make wide sidewalks. So here we walk, we bicycle, and we take the subway, and I want to get rid of one million commuter cars in Brooklyn, Brooklyn you know, in Manhattan every day. They were, bicycles didn't have a good time. These are some posters. Um, the head people, Janet Sadikan and uh, Amanda Burden, they went to Copenhagen right away to see how to do. They got some bicycles and they didn't let go of the bicycles before they were in the airport after three days. And then it was some very nice days and the whole city was fantastic. And they, they just said, we want a city like this one. When, when can you come? And I said, I can come on Monday. <laughs> so we went to New York and assisted them with a number of things. And one of the things which uh, you know about maybe is that we started to question whether they, used, they needed Broadway. Do you need Broadway? Yes, said the traffic engineers. And then the Sadi Khan said, go and model and see if you need Broadway. I doubt it. It's parallel to 7th Avenue, one way this way, Broadway, one way this way, same way. A year later, they came out sweating, saying, we found out we don't need Broadway. <laughs> Two years, data involved. They found that New York could be better without Broadway, so we were able to close Broadway on all the nice places where there were lots of people in, in Times Square, in, in uh, Hill Square, whatever, in all the squares. And then it, in 2009, it was changed, and it was changed as an experiment. And we had very careful data of before and after, and were able to show how many more people there were, how much better the turnover in the shops were, and how much faster the taxi could get through New York. That was also important. There, very close evidence, half a year later, the mayor came out and said, this experiment, no way. It's the best thing which has happened in New York since the days of Jane Jacobs. In all these cities, we used data. We, we started to study how the life in the city was going on and pointed out how it could be improved in all the cities, even in London, we have a very fine uh, a, a report from 2004. It is amazingly not used very much as compared to most of the other cities, but it is there. It is here. Um, so that was the method to make the people visible <coughs> and show where you could improve the situation in these various cities. They are now into this people-oriented city planning in cities all over the world. This is the mayor of Vilnius showing not to park in my bike lanes. Here's a, a slight little problem in Bucharest, but they, they, now they have my book. They'll soon sort it out. Then, <clears throat> then I told about these cities and, 
in a conference, and this little man came, uh, not a little man actually, a big sort of man, came galloping up and said, hey, I'm the deputy mayor of Moscow. We want to humanize Moscow. When can you come? One day. <laughs> and then, then we went to Moscow, and we were completely shocked because Moscow was completely overrun by cars, and we had between us the secret little saying that freedom from communism is the right to park everywhere. <laughs> and that was sort of the melody. No parking rules, no parking fees, no parking wardens. This is a nice little residential street, and this is Main Street, Moscow, where to have more parking, they parked on the sidewalk, and left one meter of walking for as in the main street of a city of 14 million. Not very generous. They are very, very industrious over there. They said, yeah, now many books have we written. We'll publish them all. Ah, let's start with three. Then we publish three books in three months. All of them are with the seal of Moscow in the corner. And the worried guy is a Danish ambassador. And uh, we were we were commissioned to do a study of the life in Moscow, which was a very light study because there were nearly no life because of all the cars. There were no room for life. But that's also a finding. During this period, I was, of course, invited up to the, the great mayor, Subianin. And uh, he asked me, Jan, what will be in the report? Yes, I said that parking on Main Street Sidewalk Main Street Moscow is not the greatest idea I ever saw, and we will have to say that's not a good idea. Two months later, I was over there. There was no, no parking, no more. They have very efficient democracy. <laughs> and if you are to forget the new rules, mayor has a little car here, and your car is taken straight to Siberia, and you don't <laughs> know when you will get it back. Maybe. Very efficient. <laughs> now I show you a little series of the miracle of Moscow. It's taken the five years between these pictures. This was when we were there first. Just a year and a half later, the cars have disappeared, the gray street has become green, and all the advertisement has disappeared. A, a little bit of a parking here, and not so good for pedestrians in the middle. Situation now is very different. This is a little corner by the Pushkin Monument, where a few little items have moved in. Maybe there is a, is a metro here, or maybe it's a McDonald's. You, you never know, but coming back five years later, ta-da! They have a metro station, they have a Parisian cafe, they have trees, ta-da! All the riverbanks were full of cars, and they're full speed now reclaiming the riverbanks for people. I had to refer to South Bank in London. They, they can even do it in London. <laughs> and then they did it in Moscow. And this is the, one of the most important metro stations. They stepped right out, as you can see, right out of a street with five lanes. Now they step right out on uh, <coughs> pedestrian space. And what do you see in this space? You see a fantastic battery of city-sized swings. And I found that the Moscovites, they just like swinging. They swing from early morning to 12 in the night. 
and it's it's really a nice occupation in the city when you need a little bit action. And uh, when I was there last, they had this. They say uh, we have a new problem now, yeah, and we have the Moscow baby boom. And actually, humanistic city planning is to be blamed. It's your fault. I'm proud to be the father of the baby boom in Moscow. On the way out, I saw this monument of Corbusier. He was a good communist, did some buildings for Stalin. Got a monument, and I had the chance to go over and point out where he was wrong. And he had no answers. <laughs> But Copenhagen was the first of all the cities who started really to humanize systematically. Copenhagen survived the wars, survived the city planners in the 70s, survived the traffic planners. It was just there, almost untouched, except for the visit of Admiral Parker in 1807, where he burned down the whole thing. So all the buildings are 200 years, which is a good vintage. This is Copenhagen. Um, they pedestrianized, they took the cars out of Main Street way early in 1962. That was the same time as Jane Jacobs was writing in New York. They did it in Copenhagen. They didn't know about it. I was not involved at all. They did it to get more room for the for the customers. And uh, everybody said it will never work because we are Danes, we are not Italians. But next year, they started to be Italians right away because suddenly they had time to be, they had room to be Italian. There was space. It was safe. They could be Italians. They have been Italians more and more ever since. This is situation 62. This is situation all about now in the downtown area. What is special about Copenhagen is that it's the first city in the world where the life of a city was systematically studied, where we had documentation and data that we had all the way from 68. And every five or 10 years in all these years, we have surveyed and seen what, how it has developed and been able to tell the, the city council and the mayor, this doesn't work, this works beautifully, do more of that. Uh, this area needs a caring hand. All this we at the School of Architecture have done systematically, and it was pioneered in this particular city. And what method did we knew, use? We used the Mark I eyeball, and we used these studies as educational stuff for the students. They were sent out to watch and document the people as part of their education. And we got this enormous amount. And after a little while, we at the university started to work closely with the city. Actually, the city came running down to university every time there was a little problem. What shall we do here? What, what do we have of this particular problem? And so there was a lot of influence. This is a city architect, <coughs> wonderful woman, Tina Sobu. And she said, She said, many times people come to me and say, show me what Jan has done in Copenhagen. And she can say, I can tell you for sure, you can see nothing. Because what he has done in Copenhagen is in here. And that was, she referred to that by our studies, we have changed the mindset of everybody from the mayor 
to the lowliest student and many citizens. So uh, that was when I started to think that is, we shall aim at changing the mindset. Change the mindset with the data, then the people who have the possibilities can change the cities. Um, so we go for the mindsets. And we also are able now to see how the type of public spaces has changed because we have all this evidence. It started with emphasis, you should be able to walk in your city. Then come the next phase, you shall also be able to sit because you can't walk all the time. That was when the streets, the squares were freed and cappuccino culture popped up. Then in the third phase was that you should be able to be active, to swim in the harbor, to bicycle, to do skating, parkour and whatever. Now we're into phase four with cloudbursts and climate change. And they have these new climate adaptation areas where they had a lot of inundation, but now they make the whole area as a, as a sponge. So everything is done so that water stay in the area, but stay away from the basements, go into the squares, go into wetlands. They create wetlands, and when they are not wetlands, they are playgrounds. Also in Copenhagen was the first city in the world which introduced a, a policy, we will be the best city for people in the world. It emphasizes that we shall walk more, we shall meet each other more. That's good for health, that's good for safety, that's good for social inclusion, that's good for democracy. Don't sit in your private little houses and look out of your private little windows. Come down in our wonderful outdoor spaces and enjoy the city with your fellow citizens. And they have firm goals. How should this develop at that, at that time? <clears throat> Here are signs of this new policy. So now it's not only city center, but the whole city. Streets look like this. Now they all look like this. They only have two lanes, one either way. Good median parking of, 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 of cars on the trees, uh, bicycle lanes. And uh, then we have this, which is called the continuous sidewalk, that there should be hard reasons for interrupt the sidewalk because that's about mothers and elderly people and handicapped and whatever. So keep the sidewalk going and let the Mercedes benches go over the sidewalks. Also let the bicycles along. And then the cars can come across when there are no bicycles and no pedestrians. That's very civilized. I learned in, in, in London in 2004 how the traffic engineers have made, I think we found hundreds of unnecessary sidewalk interruptions in the street we studied. That's a British traffic engineer speciality. Whenever there is a garage, stop the sidewalk because there might be a car one day. Even if the garage has been closed, that's still the, uh, the sidewalk which is interrupted. Not so in Copenhagen. And what does that mean? Laura, my grandchild, seven years, she can now walk to school all the way from her door to a school store because she can stay on the sidewalk. That's a very great difference for a girl seven years. The bicycles skip over them quickly, but we have a complete system. They put a strong emphasis on the bicycles, <coughs> saying you shall walk and you can bicycle. Uh, and they have a transport system. You can bring everything. They have fixed the crossings so that they are safe. 
And my grandchildren, when they are 12, they are allowed to bicycle all over the city. You take the bicycles. So it's an alternative system to the car. That's for free and that's very popular. They have to expand it all the time. And everybody bicycles, haha. Even the crown princess, who is Australian, have been taken to bicycles. The coming king is bicycling in the background. The people who can't bike, they are being biked. And that is very popular. Maybe also because they have a little beer here. <laughs> for <coughs> anyway, it's a very popular thing to drive old people around. And they think that wind in your hair is a human right. Oh, we have problems. We have the, the congestion. Now, what do we do? We widen all the bicycle lanes. We take the asphalt from the cars. Um, and then they have this principle that it should be quicker to go on bicycles everywhere. So they put in endless many shortcuts. And they are endlessly popular, these bridges for bicycles. So in the end, what we can find out is that the substantial bicycle culture has developed. 41 of everyone go to work on bicycles today. So we could stop here, and we almost will. Given good invitation, you will have much more walking, much more public life, and much more bicycling. Welcome to the 21st century. That's what we learned, and that was we gained by getting data about the soft side of city life for 40 years in a row. Copenhagen has all the time been about the most livable in all the lists. The lists are all made in Britain, and there's never a British city on any of them, I've noticed. I talked to Prince Charles about that. He was shocked. <laughs> um, Melbourne, Copenhagen, many years they took turns on being one or two. I took this one where Copenhagen was one. <laughs> now Copenhagen is a bit further down here because of gentrification. Copenhagen is so nice now that people move in and prices go up. Not so good. Um, <clears throat> but in all these cities, it's characteristic that they have a strong element of people friendly policy. And what is this? This is the changing the mindset. This is not my grandmother. This is the Minister of Culture of Denmark with her favorite book. <laughs> yeah, she said to me, I took it in English so the pockets can see what I'm interested in. But what is more important, she is the one who made a new architecture policy of putting people first based on data. And now, we come to the end. One and a half year ago, Copenhagen celebrated 850 years birthday. And for this, they made a festival. And for this festival, they appointed 10 persons who had formed Copenhagen. The, the famous kings and the founder and Hans Christian Andersen, whatever. And by golly, they put me down as number 10. And they said, Jan, you must realize you're responsible for Copenhagen today. And I spent the most wonderful two weeks going around to see me posters in all the bus stops. <laughs> and better still, on the doors to the metro. 
But it's a little bit moving for a guy who's an architect, who's gathered data, and who has introduced the idea of studying people, and that this studying of people has been so influential that it has informed the mindset of a city, of a nation, and of many other cities. And I, I blush when I say these things, but I'm an old guy, so I can be allowed to be sentimental. It's been great. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.